We've come to the end of what may have seemed like a very long day. But from another perspective, it goes by so quickly. It's like a dream. And just so often is life itself. It's just like a dream. I have a friend who is normally quite a healthy person, but one year uh, he got very ill suddenly. He came down with a terrible case of pneumonia and he almost died. When he was so sick, I was home in Barry teaching. I got home and a mutual friend of ours called me and said to me, did you know about this friend? And I said, well, yes. As a matter of fact, I just got a message from him and I need to call him back. Um, She said, well, you realize that he almost died, don't you? And I said, yeah, I I do. you know, let's get off the phone now so I can call him back. Uh, we hung up, and strangely enough, another mutual friend called just then. I picked up the phone, and I said, well, you know, I really can't talk very long because I have to uh, call this other person. And she said to me, well, do you know he almost died? And I said, yeah, I do. Uh, and, you know, I'll just call him now. And <laughs> finally, I got him himself on the phone, and I said to him, you know, I think I'm going to dub you he who almost died. And he said to me, well, that's better than he who almost lived. Mm -hmm. So I said, well, how do you mean that? Do you mean it like he almost died, but just at the last minute he recovered and therefore he lived? And he said, no, actually, I mean it in the sense of how we might so tragically look back at our lives at the end and say, well, I almost lived. It reminded me so much of a particular saying of the Buddha's when he said, one who is heedful or one who is mindful is on the path to the deathless, where one who is heedless or one who is mindless is as if dead already. Our lives really go by so quickly, no matter how long they last. And we actually have a choice to fully live or not. Mindfulness, according to the Buddhist view, is the key to that choice. Once uh, Joseph and I were at a Buddhist Christian conference at Gethsemane Monastery in Kentucky, where Thomas Merton had spent so much of his life and done so much of his writing, One of the presenters at the conference was a good friend of ours, a woman named Diana Eck, who's a history professor, I mean a religion professor, a philosophy professor at Harvard. And in the midst of her presentation, she was saying that there was one line in Thomas Merton's writing which couldn't possibly have any meaning whatsoever for anybody else in the room, but which had really guided her life And I was sitting there thinking, that's awfully strange. (laughs) You know, what could he possibly have said that was so meaningful to her that would be irrelevant to everybody else in the room? She went on to say that when she had been an undergraduate student, one of her professors had sent a paper she'd written to Thomas Merton. And there had been a certain amount of correspondence between Thomas Merton and the professor. And in one 
of those letters of Thomas Merton's, which ultimately got published in his journals, he used the phrase, where is Diana Eck now? And that was the line. (laughs) She said she asked herself that a lot. Where is Diana Eck now? And that has one of the key elements of mindfulness, which is simply presence. It's a, a quality of alertness and actually being connected in a powerful way to our present moment's experience. That also reminded me of something. It reminded me of my early meditation practice where I was instructed, as this course will evolve to, to try to make a mental note of my predominant experience throughout the entire day so that I was practicing a continuity of awareness. I was living in India in this particular compound and I found that I was going around this compound saying to myself, waiting, 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 until finally one day I asked myself, what are you waiting for? And I realized that I was waiting for something powerful enough to happen or important enough to happen or spiritual enough to happen so I could note it. I was living my day, and in effect living my life, as though I were a tape recorder with the pause button on. The the vision of mindfulness, or the understanding of mindfulness, is that there's nothing to wait for. Where am I right now? What's happening right now? It's actually very profound, because so much of our lives are spent in, as Robert Frost said in I think one of his last poems, he said, life is an interminable chain of longing. We wait a lot, or we ignore a lot of what is happening to us right now in a kind of fretful and anxious desire to have it be something else. We often use a very simple example, and that is, imagine you are doing something that you have done many, many times before so it doesn't have the glamour and the drama and the excitement of something brand new. Something like eating an apple, which you've probably done before. If you're eating the apple and the whole time you're lost in thought about a career change (coughs) or a vacation plan or a relationship issue, it's not very likely you will see the apple, smell it, feel it, taste it, And so it's not very likely it's going to be a very fulfilling experience. It's also quite rare that feeling that kind of dissatisfaction or unhappiness, it's quite rare that we look to the degree and the quality of our attentiveness as a possible source of that discontent. Mostly, we kind of blame the apple. And we say, if only... I had a banana, you know, then I would be happy. We go out and we eat a banana, you know, we get a banana, and maybe we eat it in exactly the same way we ate the apple. We don't really taste it, we're not really present, we're not actually connected. Again, it's not very fulfilling. And on would we go, you know, we say, wow, my life is so prosaic, it's so ordinary, it's just so bleak. I need something really exotic, like a mango, 
And if you live in Barry, Massachusetts, and you want a mango, you have to make a lot of effort to go get it. And maybe you make that effort, you bring it back home, but if you eat it in the same way you ate the apple and the banana, again, it's not very fulfilling. And this is the kind of chain of addiction to stimulation that we fall into, rather than settling back and saying, am I here? Am I actually present in this experience? So that's the first aspect of mindfulness, which is life itself, really. It's presence, it's wholeness of attention. It's a complete connection to what is actually happening. And then there's a quality of mindfulness which is about non-reactivity. Very often we fall quickly into one habit of the mind or another. If our experience in the moment is very pleasant, we tend to want to prolong it, to keep it, make it stay, control it in effect. With that effort to hold on, to um, make stagnant, to reify what is happening, inevitably comes anxiety and fear because, in fact, we can't. It's a pretty much hopeless task. And so we find ourselves leaning forward into an experience, trying to claim it, trying to make it stay. There's a word in Pali, the language of the original Buddhist text, that is bhava, it means becoming. It's that sense of leaning forward. You might experience it, as we talked about before, just with the breath. How rare it is to just feel this very breath, to meet it fully. It is much more common to be leaning forward into the next, trying to get ready, or trying to make something happen. And if you can imagine or perhaps feel how much the body would hurt from that kind of continual leaning forward, that is how much our hearts hurt from that continual leaning forward into becoming, rather than settling back into being, in effect, the wholeness and the completeness of simply meeting what is happening. So it's not that, you know, from the Buddhist perspective, you have a moralistic judgment about attachment or, or this effort to hold on. It's not that it's bad and wrong and crummy and, um, you know, that you need to condemn yourself or feel scorn when you find it. It's more to understand how it functions, really. And it's the same with aversion, which is another habit of mind. When our experience is unpleasant, we want to strike out against it, to deny it, to cover it over, to separate from it. And the consequence of that is another kind of effort to control. Often we blame ourselves. There's a sense that, oh, you know, this wouldn't have happened, this unpleasant experience, if I had only been on top of things. You know, I, I did something wrong, and there's shame, and there's blame, and there's uh, anger, there's guilt, there's judgment. And we also have certain habits of mind with neutral experiences, which is really to disappear. We just space out. We tend, frankly, to have um, very dull attention 
really all of us. And it takes often something strikingly pleasant or strikingly unpleasant for us to wake up and say, ooh, here I am. So what we do in the meditation, which is in essence the practice of mindfulness, is learn how to fully experience pleasant experience of whatever kind without adding that extra thing of trying to keep it, trying to claim it. (coughs) And we can fully experience unpleasant feeling, unpleasant sensation, whatever it is, without adding that extra thing of feeling we should be able to control it, we should be able to make it go away, and that it's bad, it's wrong. And we can finally experience neutral feeling, something that's not very strongly pleasant or unpleasant, and be there for it. And that, in effect, is having our lives return to us. There's so many ways we can experience anything in this world. There's so many ways we can experience a certain sensation in the body, or a sound, or a taste. I mentioned earlier in the retreat about the ever-so-famous parents course, courses actually, (laughs) that we once taught long ago. And I remember that before the second of the parents courses, one of our friends was quite apprehensive about the fact that her mother was going to be coming to this retreat. And she said one day, you know, my mother is the kind of woman who will walk into the office here at the center and say, those goddamn birds kept me up all night. And what was amazing was that her mother did exactly that. (laughs) It was like the third day of the retreat and her mother came into the office and she used those very words to describe the sounds of the birds singing. What's so interesting was that just a few days later, she was experiencing the same sound very, very differently. There are so many ways to hear a sound, to feel a breath, to have a sensation in the body, to have a thought. There are so many ways, and we are not bound except as we are mindless as we are lost in the habits that come and go. When we can be more fully present with our experience without being so lost in, in the kind of habitual reactions, those forces in the mind, then there's a quality of rest that is very profound. It's not the kind of rest that comes from blankness, from there being nothing happening. It's the kind of rest that comes from inclusivity, from non-reactivity, not being bound to this constant careening of trying to push away some things and hold on to others. It's very tiring because it doesn't work. I can remember in not the very earliest days of my practice, but somewhat later in my practice, when, when I would sit and things were very pleasant. In the earliest days of my practice, it was all unpleasant. But after some time, it was very, it felt very nice. You know, I would sit and it felt like my body was floating in the air and I had all of these sweet and serene mind states and I would think, oh good, 
isn't it going to be wonderful living the entire rest of my life just like this? And I would start planning, you know, well, gee, you know, in 10 years I'll go back to New York City and I'll kind of float down the streets and <laughs> exactly this state, you know, and I'll have a beatific smile on my face and it's never going to change. And of course, you know, in 10 minutes or 20 minutes or 30 minutes, it changed. My back would start hurting or my knee would start hurting or I'd get bored or I'd get restless. And every time it changed, I would blame myself. You know, what did you do to make it go away? What did you do wrong? But of course it wasn't that I had done anything wrong. It went away because everything goes away. Everything we can know with the body or the mind will pass, will change. Everything arising due to conditions will dissolve. And holding on will not change that fact. It's not that holding on or pushing away or spacing out are wrong. But they are so far from being in harmony with the truth of things. And what have we ever been able to hold on to anyway? Can you think of one thing that you could keep from changing in any way? Certainly my floating down the street changed. Everything is changing. And when we can allow that, there's a very deep quality of rest. Everything might be happening. But we are at peace. As my uh, Tibetan teacher, Nyoshal Ken Rinpoche, puts it, he's talking about when we let go of the, the burdensome habit of acquiring and pushing away, when we can be mindful of what is, he describes it this way. He says, rest in natural great peace, this exhausted mind. Because it's tiring. We can take rest. And it's not a quality of rest that's dull, that is disconnected, that's oblivious, that's blank. Everything is still happening. And we're quite connected to it. But we are resting in natural great peace, in this exhausted mind. As the uh, great Thai master Ajahn Chah once described it, he said something like, um, as you meditate, your mind will get quieter and quieter like a still forest pool. Many wonderful and rare animals will come to drink at the pool, but you will be still. Then he went on to say, this is the happiness of the Buddha. I really like that example because of that image of all the wonderful and rare animals coming to drink at the pool. When he says your mind will get quieter and quieter, that doesn't mean an absence of thought. It doesn't mean no objects arising. It doesn't mean no events coming up. It means no reactivity or less reactivity to what's going on. That is the space of being quiet. And all those wonderful and rare animals come to drink at the pool. Everything happens. But you will be still. It's the stillness of understanding, of wisdom, of being fully with what is, with intelligence, with clarity, and not being lost in the habits of the mind. This is the happiness of the Buddha. As the Buddha described life, our lives, 
He talked about our experiencing the world in any moment in one of six ways. That's through seeing and hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, and through mind objects, which are thoughts, emotions, images, things like that. He said, this is the universe as we experience it. And that every one of those moments, whether it's seeing or hearing or tasting or touching or whatever, will be known to us as pleasant and pleasant or neutral, whether it's a sight or sound or whatever. That's how we know the universe. And he said, of course, we have this habit when the experience is pleasant to cling, when it's unpleasant to push away, when it's neutral to space out. He didn't say that, but he said something like that. (laughs) And he said that in the moment, the very moment of feeling the pleasantness or the unpleasantness or the neutrality, right in that moment of hearing the sound and feeling it to be pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, we can be free. Because rather than responding with all of our old habits, we can have mindfulness, we can have clarity, we can have compassion. With all of the same stuff. Sometimes people, as they imagine a meditative life, they really don't think all the wonderful and rare animals will come to drink at the pool, that there will be pleasantness, unpleasantness, and neutrality. People often fear that everything will morph into a kind of gray blob, and there won't be any feeling anymore, and and, um, things will just become blank and and, uh, really devoid of any kind of intensity. And it's not so. We experience everything as it arises due to conditions, and we know it as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, but we're free right in the very experience of that, which means that whatever you are experiencing, it's okay. It's not that you have to trade in what's happening to you for something better. If your experience is neutral, there's a certain kind of challenge in that, to be more present. If it's pleasant, there's a certain kind of challenge in that, to experience it fully without the clinging. And if it's unpleasant, certainly there's a challenge in that, to experience it as it is, with an open heart, without condemning it or condemning yourself for having it. But it doesn't mean you have to change the experience. As I mentioned somewhere, um, when I went to India, I had been a student, a college student, and I had studied Asian philosophy. And I had actually written papers on this very topic, which uh, within the Buddhist tradition is known as the law of dependent origination, how we experience our moment-to-moment reality, the pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality of it, and the possibility of being free in the face of it. And I had written all these papers on it in Buffalo, New York, and I thought I really understood it. You know, and then I went to India, and within a few months, I went into my first exposure to meditation. It was a 10-day intensive retreat. At the time that I went into the retreat, I had never sat even for one minute before. So there I was, and on the third night of the retreat, the teacher happened to be giving a talk about this very subject, 
the law of dependent origination. So I was sitting there thinking, wow, you know, that is so incredible. That's just so magnificent. You know, I really understand this stuff, and I have some, some powerful kind of resonance with it. If I could only get rid of my knee pain, I'm sure that I'd get enlightened really quickly. And he would go on, and he would kind of expand just this very same theme. And I'd be sitting there thinking, God, that's so incredible. I must have been a Buddhist in a previous life because I just understand this stuff so well. If only I could get rid of this knee pain. I know that you know, I would go so far in this practice so quickly. And he would go on and I would go on in this amazing inner dialogue. And it took a long time, actually. It took many months before I came to the realization that what he was talking about, in fact, what the Buddha had been talking about was my knee pain. Here's an unpleasant experience in the moment, in the body, touch sensation. Was I relating to it in this moment, bound or driven by the habits of my mind, or was I being mindful? Was I actually with it without being caught in all of those reactions to it? There was my opportunity for freedom, right there. Not trading it in for something better, And in fact, what I wanted to trade it in for was white light. I had this idea that nobody actually ever told me, but it was just this idea in my mind that really good meditators were sitting, being continuously bathed in white light. And of course, I didn't have any white light. I had knee pain. I kept thinking, well, you know, someday I'll have white light, and when I do, you know, my teachers will take me aside into this other room, and they'll say, well, finally you got here, and, you know, we'd almost given up hope that you'd ever get here, but you finally did. Now you have good meditation. But it didn't come, and it didn't come, and it didn't come. And as time went on and my practice deepened, I had many, many different kinds of experiences, some of them very pleasant, some of them difficult and challenging. But whatever they were, I had contempt for them because they weren't white light. And I just kept judging and judging, saying, it's not good enough, it's not right, it's not what's supposed to be happening, because I so much wanted that light. It was like an inner incantation I had going, where's the light? Where's the light? It's not here. But of course, that is not the point of the practice. It's not to acquire, it's not to attain, it's not to have a certain experience. Rather, it's the radical transformation of how we are relating to this very moment with whatever it is presenting us with, whether it's knee pain or white light. The process of mindfulness is completely inclusive. There is nothing we cannot be mindful of. Very often people say, well, you know, I couldn't be mindful because it was too noisy. Or I couldn't be mindful because I had knee pain. (laughs) Or I couldn't be mindful because I was sleepy. And really none of that is true. We can be mindful. We might not be mindful. We might not remember to be mindful. We might not even think it important or appropriate to be mindful, but we can be mindful. We can be present, we can be aware, 
and not be caught in our reactivity. If we are sitting and it's very quiet, we can be aware of that. When the noise comes, we can be aware of that. When the reaction to the noise comes, we can be aware of that. There is nowhere that mindfulness cannot go. It's a completely inclusive, open, and free quality of mind in that way. We say that mindfulness does not take the shape of what it's watching. That means that we can be mindful in one moment of the breath, of the next moment, in the next moment we can be mindful of knee pain. After that we can be mindful of a state of great joy. After that we can be mindful of a state of great fear. And the nature of mindfulness itself does not change. It doesn't somehow get dimmer, or more contracted, upset, regretful, because what it is looking at is painful. The nature of mindfulness itself is to connect strongly and clearly to what is happening. And because it is not caught in those old reactions, it's open, it's free, it's expansive. It's spacious right in that moment. That's the very quality of mindfulness. Even when what it's looking at is kind of yucky or undesirable or in itself contracted. Mindfulness does not take the shape of what it's watching. And so it is free no matter what is going on. Usually we're very, um, you might say, object-oriented. And so we care dreadfully about what is going on. We rarely have a sense of composure or self-confidence or joy based on how mindful we are of what is going on. But that, in fact, is the whole point of the practice. Sometimes I tell the story about when I was first sitting with our Burmese teacher, Saido Pandita, who came to Barry in 1984. And, uh, he was leading a three-month retreat, which Joseph and I went into as students, never having met him. So suddenly we were there. And he was um, doing individual interviews with us six days a week. We were asked in the system of how they do interviews um, in that particular lineage to describe one sitting and one walking from the previous 24 hours. So we would go in and actually do an explicit description, like I sat down, this is where I felt the breath, this is what I felt with it, and then I fell asleep, and you know, you just say what actually happened, but um, very uh, directly. And so I noticed that there was a, a whole period of my practice where Upandita and I were in a kind of routine with each other, where I would go in and maybe one day I was describing this beautiful, wondrous, extraordinary, lovely state. And he would look at me and he would say, well, did you note it? And I'd think, what do you mean did I note it? It was great. Now, noting, as we've been practicing somewhat, is uh, one particular technique for being mindful. And it's the one that his school uses very much. 
but it not only means literally did you place a note on the experience, but more profoundly means symbolically were you mindful of it? Were you able to actually be with it? And many, many times I would go in to see him and I would tell him kind of difficult saga of my sitting or my walking where you know, it was painful in one way or another or many ways all at once. And he would look at me and he would say, well, did you note it? And I'd think, what do you mean did I note it? It was horrible. <laughs> Why should I have noted it? And it took some time, I described this to a group today, you know, I went all the way from thinking, I thought he was such a great meditation teacher. Why do we bring him all the way over from Burma? He only says one thing. <laughs> it took me from some time to get from that reaction to a very deep appreciation of what he was in effect sharing with me, which was that he was not concerned about what was happening. He was concerned about whether I could be mindful of it or not. I could have described anything. And so all of that conditioning I had toward judging, toward dualistic thinking, toward fixation, I've got to have white light, toward self-condemnation, that's what he was pointing at. That's what he was tweaking, in effect, by saying, did you note it? He really did not care, and he was not judging me based on my inability, even then, 14 years into my practice, to talk about white light. It's only a question of whether we are aware or not. Sometimes I liken meditation practice as being like going into an old attic room and turning on the light. It's not the fantastic white light that I crave so much, but it's the light of awareness of seeing, oh, this is what's happening right now. This is the truth of the present moment. That's the light of mindfulness or wisdom. And in that light, in the course of a deep investigation, the meditative journey, we see everything. It's like going into that old attic room and we see these beautiful treasures. And we might feel just tremendous awe and gratitude that a treasure like that could be in our attic. And we might see these dusty, neglected corners, and we think, ooh, you know, I thought I cleaned that up a long time ago, you know, I better, I better clean that up. And we might see these objects that are pretty undesirable and fearful or dismaying. And we think, ooh, no, not that too, in my attic. But we see everything. It's like we see everything that a human being can feel, touch, want, fear. We see everything, the whole nature of, as the Taoists put it, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. It's this constant display of experience. And so there is no singular kind of experience that is good meditation. It doesn't matter. What matters is shining the light of awareness. We see whatever is happening in the moment as much as possible with an open and loving awareness. And in 
in its openness and its tremendously inclusive nature, mindfulness mirrors the nature of love in that we can open, we can connect to without rejection, without exclusion, everything. It's like these are all aspects of our, our own minds and we can befriend them all. These are all aspects of our physical experience and we can befriend them all. That discovery is the wellspring of joy that meditation brings because we are resting our sense of confidence in our ability to connect to, to care, to open to, and to include. It's like the truth of things is everywhere. The nature of reality is everywhere, and where else would it be? But we tend to overlook it because we are so caught in the habits of our mind. We don't have to struggle to somehow fitfully trade in our experience for something else in order to find the truth. It's everywhere, but we need to learn how to look. We need to learn how to connect, how to pay attention. Every single moment of seeing and hearing and tasting and touching and smelling and mind objects is expressive of the truth of our lives. When we can open, This is from St. Augustine who said, if you're looking for something that is everywhere, you don't need travel to get there. You need love. And in that sense, mindfulness is just like love. We open, we include, we connect. And also we see clearly. We can understand in a much deeper way when we are actually paying attention without the burden of the past and conclusions that we've drawn, without the burden of comparing, without the burden of the future in our imagination. There's tremendous understanding in that. It's so rare that we come to a situation without any agenda whatsoever, trying to make it into something or another. And yet, to be really open to experience what is, is the basis for for wisdom, for understanding. Mostly, we come into a situation with something going on, so that part of our attention is blocked, part of our energy is consumed, and we can't actually pay attention to the fullness of the experience. I had a very funny experience last night because uh, Joseph had told me before the talk that he was going to be telling a story that involved me. So I found myself throughout his talk moving from actually listening fully and appreciating it tremendously I found myself moving from that space to wondering what story he was going to tell about me in a very self-referential way. So I was sitting here and listening to him as he began with the precious human birth, and I thought, well, no, that's not so likely. I mean, 
everybody's got a precious human birth. I don't think that there's, you know, there's a particular story about me. And I think, you know, he went on to change. And I thought, well, no, you know, let me think. Maybe, you know, would it be that one or would it be that one? No. And then he went on to death. And I thought, well, no, you know. Um, then he went on to South Africa. And I thought, well, we did go to South Africa together in 1982, but that was really a long time ago. And I don't know that anything happened. And then he went on to the Bushmen. And I thought, oh, no, he's going to tell a story about how much luggage I'm traveling with. <laughs> I thought, oh, no, that's just terrible. And then, I thought, I thought, I tell stories sometimes about how much luggage I travel with because it happens to be one of my restless fixations um, in meditation. It's true that you know I f sit and fantasize, well, I'll use up all the shampoo, you know, so the suitcase will be lighter when I get going with it. You know, I thought, certainly he's not going to tell that story about me, is he? And then, you know, time was going on. I thought, maybe he's not going to get to the story about me anyway, you know? And then he finally told the story, and I thought, oh, what a relief, you know? <laughs> and so often we are like that. The word that is often used for the opposite of that is dispassion. And that's not a word that's very popular because it seems to imply a kind of coldness and not caring and withdrawal and indifference, which it really doesn't mean at all. I almost think of dispassion as being a state of honor where we're not moving into a situation thinking, oh, what's he going to say about me? You know, uh, It's not all self-referenced. And we're not bound to our habits of mind. And so we can see clearly. We can actually learn from situations. That's the source of wisdom. Usually we are so caught in the world of story that we have created. We don't even realize that we've created it. It seems so solid, so substantial, so enduring so real to us. But it takes being mindful, being present, to watch it dissolve. And to see, oh, this is the truth of the moment. That was a compounded thing. It's very interesting, those moments when we watch things break apart. One of my favorite stories about that has to do with um, a particular wing in our center in Barry. When we went to look at the facility in 1975, actually, um, we moved in February of 1976, but when we first went to look at it, it was December of 1975, and we were given a tour of this very large place, and we got to a particular wing of it, and Joseph, who uh, was raised in the Catskill Mountains of New York, um, where there are many resorts and hotels, were many resorts and hotels, um, said something like, oh, this wing reminds me of a hotel in the Catskills. I thought, huh, that's funny, and didn't think anything of it. And then, that was December, we moved in in February, and the place was so big that somebody had to go around and draw a map and say, you know, this is where the closets are, this is where the bathrooms are, and they posted this map on the bulletin board. So the first day that I went to look at it, there it was in black and white under this wing, Catskills. 
And I thought, well, that's strange. You know, Joseph just made a joke. And I thought, like the word yogi, I thought, well, this will never last. You know, this was just a joke. And, of course, uh, 22 years later, it's still called the Catskills. And I have a friend who went there for the first time a few years ago, and as is the custom, when you go for the first time, you're given a tour by one of the staff members so you can find your way around. And when they got to that particular wing, my friend said to the staff member, why is this called the Catskills? And the person said, with great confidence, he said, oh, this is called the Catskills because it's the wing that lies closest to the Catskill Mountains. And <laughs> which actually is not true. It actually lies the furthest from the Catskill Mountains. But and then my friend said this to me, and I looked at him in complete amazement, and I said, why in the world would we name a wing because of its proximity to the Catskill Mountains? <laughs> but this legend has just grown up over time, you know, based on assumption rather than investigation. And we do that always. You know, that's a very innocuous example, but what does it mean to us to be in pain, as an example? to have emotional or physical pain. How often are we simply with the experience and how often are we caught in a great big story about it? That it's wrong, that it's bad, that we should hide it, we should disguise it, we should distort it. What about when somebody else is in pain? How often can we be present? Can we be mindful? Can we be open? And how many times are we caught in a story? I have to be the one to make it go away, or this is threatening to me. You know, happiness can't, personal happiness can't be sustained when you're looking at someone else's suffering, or whatever kind of interpretation or judgment. It's very big. We live in a world of created thoughts, and we're lost very often in that. So what happens when we're simply mindful? We find that we are facing our direct experience nakedly, openly, fully. And then we can learn. <coughs> then we can come to some greater understanding of who we are and what our lives are about. It's not that hard to be mindful. In my early practice, I had a kind of idea, another idea, that it was a quite distant goal that to be present, to be aware, was something almost unnatural and that it was so it was so far away that I would imagine it almost as being like a quality on top of a mountain with the thought that, okay, I'll get there someday. You know, it's really hard and it'll be a struggle and I'll start out walking and I'll end up crawling, but someday Whereas actually, it's not far away at all. It's right here. And in a way, it's deeply natural. It's a little unfamiliar, and it's certainly discontinuous. But it's right here. It's perfectly natural. And when we remember, we can access it. It's not that our mindfulness isn't good enough, Mindfulness in its very nature is open, it's pure, it's connected. Mine as well as yours. 
ours as well as the Buddha's. But for most of us, it's somewhat rare and intermittent. It's not that we rest in that state so very often, and thus we practice. Not to gain something that is foreign or unfamiliar or remote, but to bring it to life moment after moment in a whole range of different experiences so that we see, oh yeah, here too, I can be mindful. And mindfulness is still mindfulness. The nature of it doesn't change. And here too, and here too, and here too. It's like love. It's like compassion. It's learning to include. And it's a profound understanding to see that we don't have to do remedial work to get there. And when we've lost it, maybe for a good long stretch of time, we still don't have to do remedial work to get back to it. There's nothing we have to prepare. We don't have to punish ourselves. We don't have to do something extraordinary. We simply have to begin again. And the moment we do that, it is fully back and fully supporting us. The practice, like everything, develops moment after moment. And this is a very important understanding. You don't have to worry about being mindful tomorrow or later tonight. It's just right now. And then when you lose it, it's just right now again. Sometimes when I'm on retreat, I notice this tendency in my mind where I'll be doing walking meditation, I'll be standing at one end of the room, and I'll see the place on the wall, the opposite wall, where I know I'm going to be turning around in a little while. So I say to myself, okay, I'll be mindful from now until I turn around, which one can't do. You can only be mindful one step at a time. And to fully bring our energy toward being mindful right now is the practice. Everything else is like a story we tell ourselves. And so even in that, what seems to be a wonderfully wholesome thought, it's almost like I was taking my energy body and hurling it to the other end of the room and losing touch with the moment. It's just this very breath, right now. Just this one step. Just this one moment of hearing or whatever is the experience right now. Again, a very simple example from the Buddha, which has always meant a lot to me, Uh, really been tremendously important and inspiring for me, even though it is so simple. He said, the mind will get filled with qualities like mindfulness or loving kindness moment by moment, the way a bucket will get filled with water drop by drop. And I just love this example from the very first time I heard it because right from that first time I could see myself standing by the bucket doing one of two things. One was fantasizing about how glorious it was going to be when the bucket was completely filled (laughs) and I was fully enlightened floating down the streets of New York (laughs) without sort of taking the time or having the patience or the humility to add the very next drop, just the next moment of mindfulness. And the other tendency, of course, was I could just see myself standing there looking into the bucket and thinking, ooh, it's really kind of empty in there. (laughs) You know, it's going to be forever before this is filled and kind of going on in a whole train of self-judgment in that way. And again, not bothering to add the next drop. 
Every single moment, something is appearing. A sensation in the body, the breath, a sound, a sight, a taste, something. Every single moment, we can be mindful. But we have to remember. And then as time has gone on, I've kind of added another image to the bucket, which was imagining myself standing by the bucket and kind of looking over into everyone else's bucket, you know, kind of saying, well, how are they doing? <laughs> you know? There are a lot of things we can do standing by that bucket. But there's only one thing we have to do, which is add the very next drop. And that is an opportunity that is always present for us. Because of the nature of mindfulness, that it's, it's open, it's present, it's relaxed, it's non-judgmental, it's natural, the quality of the effort we put forth reflects all of that. It's not like we have to strain to acquire something someday. It's not that we have to judge our experience as not being good enough in light of what we think should be happening. What we need to do is have as much continuity as we possibly can. And when we lose it, when we are lost in space or lost in a reaction, then we start again. That's the nature of right effort. I'd like to close by um, reading this poem from the Taoist tradition, which I think of sometimes as a, a kind of guideline for uh, right effort in a retreat. It says, Enjoy yourself. Relax. Stop setting snares. Get delicate. Relax and follow where that leads you. Clouds may be thick or thin. Windows may be dark or bright. Take it easy. You can break the poor old dragon's jaw by pulling teeth for meaning. Stumble along as upright as you can, and don't be avaricious. Who tries to hold what flashes in the worldly, worldly storm will drown. Let the sun and the moon handle rising and falling. I'll pretend I know nothing. So let's sit together for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.